Well, good morning, church. It's 2023. Are you excited about that? And that's a good thing. It's a new year. I hope you know that our prayer for you as a staff team and as a church has been that you would actually find some rest in this holiday season, that maybe you could pull back a little bit from the busyness of life and the craziness of all that's going on and take a little bit of a deep breath and rest for a moment. Some of you are looking at me like, you know, I stayed up until midnight last night, right? And some of you are like, I stayed up even later than that. Well, I've got good news for you. I'm gonna keep you awake by asking you to stand with me again. We are gonna begin our time this morning reading from the word of God. Man, what an incredible opportunity. Go ahead and stand. You're all very slow to stand up this morning. That's okay. It's okay. What an opportunity we have this morning to actually hear from the, from the word of the Lord on the first day of the year. That's a really special opportunity. It's something that we don't get very often, and, and I'm really excited about it this morning. We're gonna be in 2 Kings chapter 18 this morning, 2 Kings chapter 18, and we're gonna look to the life of a man named Hezekiah, we're gonna ask a question. What does it mean that we would gather together on the first day of the year, and what might God ask us to consider as we look towards a new year together. So if you would look with me at 2 Kings 18, beginning in verse one, the word of the Lord says this. In the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him, for he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria, and he would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory, from watchtower to fortified city. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, we recognize that time is really nothing to you. Father, that you are up in heaven, that you are sovereign and ruling in all places at all times, in all of human history, you are there. But God, to us, we feel the turning of time every second, every minute, every new year, asking ourselves the question, does our life have meaning? What is that meaning? Father, we pray this morning that as we look to your word on the first day of a brand new year and we begin to look at our own hearts and our own lives and ask this question of meaning, of values, Father, I pray that you would shed light on what you have called us to if we trust in your son, Jesus, to live a life that honors and glorifies his name. Father, show us the way this morning for your word is a light and a lamp to our feet. So we trust you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Y'all can be seated this morning. You know, when we talk about rest, there's probably no better place on earth for me to rest than in the woods. I love being in the woods. And if I had to pick 
a favorite woods that I would like to go and rest in. It's the woods of Yosemite National Park, okay? Yosemite National Park. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. In my mind, nothing compares to the incredible beauty and the sheer landscape of the Yosemite Valley. I mean, it's got something for every kind of person. It has 25 cascading waterfalls. It has 3,000 foot sheer granite cliffs that just hang over you as you're walking through the valley. It has mountain landscapes out in the distance, things like Half Dome, things that you can recognize from far, far away. But my favorite thing in all of Yosemite Valley and all the beautiful things that are there is this picture right here on the screen. This is Yosemite Falls. And it is unimaginably beautiful. Yosemite Falls is the highest of all 25 waterfalls in Yosemite Valley. It's actually the 20th tallest waterfall in the entire world. It's beautiful. It it stands at 2,425 feet tall. And it is unbelievably beautiful. Hard to describe. It's something that you only see in person. And it just takes your breath away. And when our family visited the valley in 2016, the one thing I wanted to do was hike to the top of Yosemite Falls, okay? So we're we're talking about in the picture, the the little cliff side right at the top. This is the view from the top. It is a horribly difficult climb, okay? It is a brutal hike. You climb 2,800 feet in three and a half miles. It has the highest ranking of difficulty in all of the rankings available at Yosemite, the ranking of strenuous. And I can affirm it was strenuous, okay? It was difficult. From bottom to top and back down again, the hike totals 7.2 miles, and it takes six to eight hours. Six to eight hours to complete. At one point, literally, you're walking up switchbacks of granite staircases, okay? It's like, it's unbelievably hard. And its reputation was not embellished. When we attempted the hike, it was November. There was snow, there was ice, things were slippery, okay? And it was, it was kind of a sketchy experience. In fact, if I was gonna choose a word to describe that experience, I would choose breathless. Breathless, okay? Because between the elevation of the hike, between the ice on the stone steps, man, it was a frightening thing to do. It took us about three and a half hours to get to the top, but I'll remember that after all the suffering, all the danger, all the nervousness that we felt on our hike to the top, when you stand at the edge of that cliff and you look at that view that you saw on the screen, it takes your breath away. It takes your breath away. It's like you're standing on the edge of the world, looking down 3,000 feet into the valley below, seeing where you've come from, and all of this hard and difficult journey all the way to the top, and all of a sudden what was breathless actually begins to feel kind of like a breath of fresh air. You have this really significant moment where you stand on the edge of that sheer cliff and the water is falling down and you can just take it in. You can rest for a minute. You can breathe. You can reflect. You can think about the difficulty it took to get there and the payoff at the top. I don't think it's it's unlike the moment we find ourselves in this morning. We've been on this hike for a whole year drudging up the side of a mountain. For some of us, it was easier than others. Some of us, we had goals and we achieved those goals. Others of us, we set goals and we didn't even come close. For some of us, man, we had plans that we, they just fell right into place. They were exactly what we wanted them to be. And for others, man, things happened to us that we had no way to anticipate. For some of us in 2022, we faced the most difficult hardships we faced in our entire lives. 
And for some of us, we experience the most incredible blessings of our lives. And then it's just so interesting. Now we're all gathered here in this room together, taking in the view, standing on the edge of the cliff, seeing where we've come from with the opportunity to ask ourselves, where do we go next? Where do we go from here? I believe that God's grace gives us cliffside moments like these in our lives for a reason, so that we might actually stop, so that we might actually rest and take in the sights and ask the deep questions of our hearts. What was it that we valued most? What was it that we ran after? What was it that took our attention, our time, our energy in the past year? And how is God calling us to take a different step in the new year. So as we stand together at this cliffside moment, I believe that the life of Hezekiah, the legacy of Hezekiah, provides us with some questions we can ask about what we value in our lives. Because what we see in his story is many cliffside moments. Moments where he had to stop and ask a question. Moments where he had to, to make a choice to trust in the Lord or to go his own Way. And I believe there are three questions we can pull from his life this morning as we stand at this cliffside moment. So are, are you ready to go through those questions with me? Nod like this. I'm going to make sure you stay awake. Okay, there's the nods. Yep, that's good. The first question is this. The first question is this. Whose approval am I seeking? Whose approval am I seeking? The author of 2 Kings begins his summary of Hezekiah's life by recounting Hezekiah's lineage and shedding light on the immense pressures that Hezekiah would face as he reigned in Judah. We're told Hezekiah is the son of a king named Ahaz. And Ahaz was an evil king. He embraced pagan worship and he had a wicked reputation. In fact, the Bible tells us just how wicked he really was in chapter 16 of 2 Kings. In verses two and three, this is what it says about Hezekiah's father. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done, but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. He was not a good guy. Ahaz was the epitome of the reason that Judah found itself in the place that it found itself in in history at the time. And Hezekiah must have felt this pressure on his shoulders, his father's reputation, his father's way, weighing on him as he stepped into the king's leadership, the king's role. But this isn't the only pressure we see mounting on Hezekiah as he's ruling over Judah. In fact, in chapter 17 of 2 Kings, we see the catastrophic end of the northern kingdom. It came to an end. You see, after many warnings from God through the prophets, judgment had come on the sins of the northern kingdom of Israel. And it was carried out by the greatest war machine of the day, the Assyrian military. Overwhelmed and overtaken, the northern kingdom ceased to exist. And the people of Judah must have thought, man, we, we're next. They're coming for us next. So during his reign, Hezekiah found himself at all these different cliffside moments. Would he follow his father's example or would he follow after the Lord? Taking the throne at just 25 years old, Hezekiah carried on his shoulders. Just consider this with me for a moment. He carried on his shoulders the pressure of his father's evil legacy, 
the voices of those loyal to his father's policies and religions, scrutinizing him at every turn, every decision he would make, and the political instability of a looming superpower seeking to eliminate Judah all together. It's a little bit of pressure, right? Just a little bit of pressure. And what the scripture tells us is simply astounding. What it tells us about Hezekiah in verse three is astounding. This is what it says. It says, despite despite all of the pressures from within and without, Hezekiah, what? Did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. You see, amidst all this pressure from every different side, Hezekiah had to answer the same question that you and I are going to consider together this morning. Whose approval am I really seeking Whose approval am I looking to to validate my success, to validate who I am, to validate my identity? You see, instead of seeking the affirmation and the approval of all of the voices around him amidst all of this incredible pressure during his reign, Hezekiah rested. He rested in the trust that he had in the Lord. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Man, you and I, we're we're familiar with pressure, right? Pressure is all around us all the time. Some pressure is good pressure. The pressure to do well at work is a good pressure. The pressure to be a good dad or a good mom, those are good pressures. But we also see pressures that are totally unrealistic, that are being placed on our shoulders left and right by all kinds of different media, different opinions, different thought processes, all of these different things weighing in on us. Just to name a few, there are pressures to be the best performer at work, to be the first one there and the last one to leave, to make the biggest sale in company history. Pressure to have the best behaved kids or maybe the best performing kids. There's pressures to be the perfect dad, the perfect mom who never messes up, who never does anything wrong. There are pressures to have a perfect marriage that has no flaw, no difficulty. Everything is just hunky-dory all the time. There's pressures to be physically attractive or to post experiences and, and different things online so that people will like our pictures and like our posts so that they might tell us in some way or another through their likes that we can be validated, that we're actually doing a good job, that we're meeting all of these requirements and these pressures putting on us. But what's really happening is as these pressures mount us, we run, mount up on us, we run. We run faster and faster and faster and faster, and we keep clicking up the pace, turning up the speed of the performance treadmill of life, doing everything we can to please as many as we can to find some some form of validation in our life. But there's no amount of performance, no amount of outward validation, no amount of keeping up with the Joneses that will ever satisfy that itch in your heart that tells you that you're just not good enough. You're just not enough. And I have a little bit of hard news. The truth of the matter is, in the eyes of a perfect God, we're not. We're not enough. But that's where the beauty of the gospel shines the brightest. That's where the beauty, the balm of what Jesus has done for us heals the wounds and the itches and the the need to be validated in our heart. You see, when we simply wouldn't do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, he sent his son while we were still sinners. 
Christ died for us. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the life we couldn't live, dying the death we should have died, offering hope to the hopeless by his resurrection from the dead so that you can know forgiveness. You can know grace. You can find final, assured, solidified approval by the one and the only one who sees you for who you really are, who knows your heart and is perfect. So what does it mean for you? What does this mean for you? It means if you trust in Jesus this morning, you don't have to perform. You don't have to run anymore. You don't have to meet every person's expectations of what your life should look like perfectly. He has freed you from that and he has invited you in to the satisfaction of the justifying love of God. You can know, assured, finally through the death and resurrection of Jesus that you are forgiven, that you are redeemed, that the stamp of approval has been made and you can do what is right in the eyes of the Lord, because he has proclaimed you right in his eyes. Did you catch that? Because of what Jesus has done, you can do what is right in the eyes of the Lord, because he has proclaimed you right in his eyes. This is the good news offered to anyone who trusts in Jesus. So I wanna ask you this morning, in 2022, whose approval did you seek? What kind of pressures were on your shoulders? What kind of pressures will you be carrying into this new year? What if instead of trying to live up to every pressure that is put on us, we did what was right in the eyes of the Lord? We did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, resting in the fact that the record of Jesus is the way that our Heavenly Father sees us. Whose approval are you seeking? But I believe there's a second question in the life of Hezekiah we see in verse four, and that is, what am I holding on to? What am I holding on to? See, we know from verse three that Hezekiah's personal desire, what he wanted to do for himself, was to do what was right in God's eyes. But we know from the behavior of the people and from his own father Ahaz that this wasn't the desire of the people. So what would he do? What would he do with the people that he ruled over? Was there any hope to save them from the same fate as the northern kingdom. Well, I think Hezekiah knew that he had to pull some weeds, okay? Now, I'm gonna say this at the beginning of this illustration. Any plant I've ever owned has died, okay? I am not a gardener. I'm glad that like my ability to take care of plants doesn't translate to my ability to take care of my kids. That would be bad, okay? I'm glad that that's not the case. But my neighbors, Robert and Candy, they basically like, it's like the botanical gardens, at their house, okay? Like if you look out the side window of my house, there's these incredible displays of flowers and these beds, just like their entire yard is growing with all these different kinds of flowers and they replant every season and it's just beautiful. But one of the things I've noticed that they do is that the the turnover of every season, they are out there on their hands and knees after they pull those flowers out and get ready to plant new seeds, pulling out every tiny little weed every sign that a weed might be taking root where they plan to plant their flowers. Because they know, they know that if they leave those weeds there and they try to plant those flowers, what's gonna happen? 
What's gonna happen? It's gonna choke out the flowers, right? The, some flowers might grow, but it's gonna be uneven. It's not gonna look the way they want it to look. They know that they've got to pull those weeds out to make sure that the flowers that they plant will grow and flourish. And I think Hezekiah knew to, to do what was pleasing in the sight of God and try and avoid that same judgment, he needed to confront the rampant idolatry of the kingdom of Judah. So in, in verse four, we see two primary places that Hezekiah pulled the weeds of idolatry from Judah so that, people, so that the people might actually replant their hearts in the garden of God's love, in the, in the covenant that they once ascribed to. So let's look at these two together this morning. First, Hezekiah confronted the pagan worship, the pagan idols. In verse four, the author of 2 Kings tells us, Hezekiah removed the high places, broke their pillars, and cut down the Asherah. Now, in ancient pagan religious practice, there's all kinds of religious syncretism happening there. All these religions kind of sync together. Uh, the Israelites had picked them up from different places and different peoples. It was kind of just a big mess. But we do know that the high places and the pillars represented male deities that they worshipped, and the Asherah represented female deities. And the worship of these false gods, as we've seen in the case of Hezekiah's father Ahaz, it was disgusting to God. It was barbaric. God hated it. It repulsed God. And Hezekiah knew that he couldn't just allow that worship to continue. He couldn't allow those weeds to grow if there was any hope of flowers to come again. He knew it needed to be removed altogether if reconciliation was to happen between God and his people. But Hezekiah didn't just stop there. He didn't just stop with the pagan gods, but we're told that he dismantled the bronze snake. Now that's, that's a relic from Numbers 21 that was used by Moses to heal the people after God's judgment on them for their, for their complaining and their mistrust in the Lord in the wilderness. For Hezekiah, fidelity to God meant the removal of any idol that took worship and adoration away from God alone. It didn't matter if it was a religious idol or a pagan idol, it didn't matter. He knew that for the flowers to grow, the weeds had to be completely pulled out. Now, I don't know about you, I don't have any like little statues in my room that I'm bowing down to and worshiping, okay? I mean, most of us in here could probably say that that's not the case for us, but we do know that idolatry is present and has been present in all of our lives at some point or another. Idolatry is rampant in our day and age. It is everywhere. And idolatry can take many different forms, but its primary function is to distract, misdirect, and lure your affections away from God alone and onto something else that is totally and entirely unworthy of your worship. That's what idolatry does. And in today's culture, man, the list is eternally long when it comes to what you can worship in your life. When we think about pagan idols, we think about things like self-gratification, self-worship, comfort, running after large amounts of wealth or vain beauty, popularity. Sexuality is a huge idol of our culture. Sports, our own kids can be an idol. Our work, our career can be an idol and on and on and on. But we also know that there are idols in our life that dress themselves in the trappings of religion. Things like self-righteousness, 
religious works, religious pride, even a religious form of comfort that can form in the church and take root in our hearts. And every one of these idols, every single one of them, is used by our enemy to pull our affection and worship from God like weeds growing among the flowers. And if many of us are really honest this morning, we've professed faith in Christ maybe for a long time. Maybe you've walked with Jesus for a very long time. Maybe you are a new Christian and you're walking with Jesus this year. Whatever it is, many of us have maintained, as we say we walk with Jesus, confess we walk with Jesus, we maintain in the shadows over here on the side a pet idol. An idol that we kind of go back to over and over again. An idol that we, we hide from other people. For some of us, it's a little more obvious, right? Like maybe our idol is career success or the establishment of our kids or the building of wealth for our own glory. But for some of us, they're in the secret and we tell ourselves, man, this, this idol is not gonna harm anybody. Nobody knows about this. I'm the only one that this affects. There's no harm in the fact that I go back to pornography over and over again. Man, people don't know that, that I'm unfaithful. It's not a big deal. And we hide it in the shadows. Maybe there's some kind of addiction. Maybe Whatever it is, we hide this little pet in the shadows and we kind of go back to it when we feel like we need a fix. But what Hezekiah is showing us in his life is we have to pull out the weeds so that we can see the real beauty of the garden that the, the grace of Jesus wants to plant in our hearts and in our lives. We have to confront these idols you see, whatever the case may be for you this morning, the idols will act as weed among the, uh, weeds among the flowers, choking out the Spirit's life-giving work in your heart and robbing you of the full joy that is promised to you in Jesus. But we also know that the Scriptures tell us that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The Bible says that we're no longer slaves to sin, that we can be alive in Christ, freed from sin's tyranny over our life through the justifying death and resurrection of Jesus. In his power, like Hezekiah, you can tear down the Asherah of your heart. Will you do it? What if 2023 is the year where you say, this is an idol and I'm gonna tear it down in the power of the spirit? What are you holding on to? What won't you let go of that is keeping you from the beautiful joy of the gospel that Jesus has assured and purchased on your behalf? What idol do you need to lay down? Whose approval am I seeking? What am I holding on to? And the last question I think we see in the life of Hezekiah is what kind of legacy am I building? What kind of legacy am I building? As the writer of 2 Kings continues to unpack Hezekiah's life, he gives us kind of a summary statement about the legacy of Hezekiah's faith and then the fruit that followed from that faith. We see that Hezekiah's trust in the Lord was so foundational to who he was as a person, to his identity, that he actually became known for his trust in the Lord. Verse six actually tells us Hezekiah not only trusted in the Lord, but clung to him, depended on him all of his life. And because of that trust, we see an incredible statement made about Hezekiah, that he was greater than any of the kings of Judah before and after him. That's incredible. That's an incredible statement to be made. So we have to ask ourselves, man, 
what are we talking about when we're saying that Hezekiah trusted in the Lord? That's kind of a phrase we throw around, right? Like, I trust in the Lord. But what does it mean? What does it mean to trust in the Lord? Well, I think Dane Ortland really helps us with this question by kind of just jumping on it head on. He says this, what does it really mean to trust God? To trust God means to live your life as if God actually exists and is who he says he is. It's to conduct your existence in such a way that what you say that you believe about God aligns with how you use words, money, your body, and other people. It's to leave your final welfare in God's hands rather than in your own. I love that. To say it more simply, I think he's really saying this, trusting God requires us to relinquish, to let go of the control of our life and actually believe that he will be who he says he will be through Christ for us. It means that we not only confess or ascribe to belief, but we actually reorient our life around it. We change the way we live because of what we have confessed to be true, what we say we believe is true. So, so if that's the case, then when the scripture says that Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the trust it's talking about is actually an active catalyst for living differently. That when we confess that we trust someone at their word and we trust what they say to be true, then the way we live flows from that trust. We listen to what they say and we change. We do things differently. We reorient ourselves. I, I'm going to tell you again, I feel like I'm giving disclaimers this morning. Uh, this next illustration, man, it's not good parenting advice, but when my kids won't eat vegetables, okay, I've got a five-year-old and a three-and-a-half-year-old. When they won't eat vegetables, I remember probably about a year ago, they would not eat the broccoli. We had like a mixture, like a little vegetable medley. Is that what it's called? Vegetable medley, right? And they've got it on their plate in front of them. I'm like, guys, you've got to eat your vegetables. And they're like, no, no, we won't do it. And I was like, well, did you know that when you eat vegetables, they actually transform into brownies on their way down to your tummy? <laughs> and they were like, what? I'm like, I'm for real. So like, if you eat these vegetables, you're actually eating brownies. And they were like, what? What did they do? They ate the vegetables, right? Because they trust their daddy at his word. Now, I was a total liar, right? But he, they trusted their daddy at his word. They changed the way they lived their life because they, they trusted me. They trusted what I said. I, what I'm not trying to say is, man, the scripture's saying Hezekiah was a good boy and he did what he was supposed to do, okay? What I am saying is that Hezekiah's life, as we're gonna see in verses five through eight, Hezekiah's life actually reflected his confession. His legacy, what he was known for, actually matched what he said he believed. His life was defined by what he confessed to believe about God and the actions that faith produced validated his confession, and the Bible talks about this like all over the place. Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter six, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, but each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. What is he saying? He's saying, well, an apple tree is not going to produce oranges. If you truly believe in your heart that what God has said and done and accomplished for you in Christ is true, it will change the way you live your life. 
It has to. Otherwise, you're an apple tree trying to be an orange tree. But James said it even more clearly in James chapter two, verse 14. He said it like this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he doesn't have works? Can that faith save him if a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food? And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things they need for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So we see in verse five and six, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord. And then in verse seven and eight, we see the faith that led to action that validated the genuineness of his faith. Instead of surrendering in verse seven to the great power of the Assyrian army and paying tribute and worship to the leader of Assyria, Hezekiah rebelled, verse seven says, against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He would serve God alone. The writer tells us in verse eight that Hezekiah struck down the Philistines. It was the first time Israel had had victory against the Philistines since King David. In both of these courageous acts, the Lord's power and presence was with Hezekiah in his success. And it was directly related to Hezekiah's trust in the Lord. So when we consider what genuine trust really looks like, it becomes really clear that trust in the Lord or trust in something is directly related to our legacy in life. They can't go one without the other. They're not two separate things, but they're inextricably connected. The Oxford Dictionary defines legacy as this, the long-lasting impact of particular events and actions that took place in a person's life. If our actions flow from what we trust in and what we believe, then the legacy we are building, when we live from that belief, has everything to do with what we're trusting in. Everything. So if our trust in God acts as a catalyst for our actions, then trust forms the foundation on which we build our legacy. And our legacy is the living testimony of where our trust really was. What will people say about you at your funeral based on the way you lived in 2022? What mattered most to you? What kind of legacy were you building? If you track that road back, you're gonna find what you trusted in. You're gonna find where you put your faith. We see in Hezekiah's life that his greatness didn't stem from accolades, from accomplishments in the political or the, the professional sphere. It wasn't an accumulation of wealth. In fact, Hezekiah's life was full of hardship and difficulty. But instead, we see he's the greatest king of Judah from all the kings before and all the kings after. Why? Because he trusted in the Lord. He trusted in the Lord. His legacy, his life's story was written in the foundation of trust in the Lord. I hope you know your legacy matters. It matters. The people that you influence, the people that you are around, God has you there for a reason. And if we believe God at his word, we believe that he has plans for our lives to make a kingdom impact in every environment, relationship, context that he has placed us intentionally in. The question is, do you trust him at his word? Will you take a step of faith, action that flows from the one you trust? Will you move towards what he has called you to? To trust in him means that we live our lives based upon our confession. 
It means that we build our plans for 2023, our future even further down the road, our prayers, our hopes, our everything on the sovereign and providential plan of a God in heaven who has told us his love for us by giving his son. And from there we say, I will trust you at your word. Show me where to take a step. What if you lived your life that way this year? That in every place where God has put you, you said, I will trust you at your word. I will step in faith. I will share the gospel with this person I've known for years. I will put this idol down in my life. Then the legacy that you'll be building is one that on, your, on, your, on that final day when your family's celebrating your life and they are together, they will say, man, he trusted in the Lord. She trusted in the Lord. So who's your trust in? Where can your trust be traced back to? And who will you trust this year? Whose approval am I seeking? What am I holding on to? What kind of legacy am I building? You know, the, the account of Hezekiah's life, it kind of falls in a peculiar place in the larger history of God's people. In many ways, it kind of serves as like a breath of fresh air amid all of these like terrible things that are happening, amid evil kings and overthrown kingdoms and false gods being worshiped and unrepentant hearts in the people, we see the life and the legacy of Hezekiah and his values kind of as the last little flicker of light, the last and most true version of following the Lord before the end of the kingdom comes altogether. You see, biblical history shows us that no matter how inspiring Hezekiah's trust and faith was, it wasn't enough. It couldn't change the hearts of the people. And although he spent his life clinging to God and following his ways, his son, King Manasseh, was one of the most wicked of all the kings of Judah to ever rule. And ultimately, we know that the judgment of God would come on the southern kingdom. And through the Babylonians, God would execute his judgment and eliminate the kingdom altogether. His faith wasn't enough. His faith wasn't enough to, to take care of the sins of the people that he ruled over. His righteous life served as an example, but he couldn't mend their brokenness. He couldn't change their hearts. And this is because Hezekiah's faith, as strong as it seems to us, even as the example that it is to us this morning, it's only a shadow it's only a shadow of the true and the better Hezekiah. King Jesus, who does more than bring about reforms for his people, but recreates your heart from the inside out. The true and the better Hezekiah does not simply tear down idols, but bears the judgment for your idolatrous heart so that you might be reconciled to God. The true and the better Hezekiah Man, he, he didn't only keep the commandments of God, but walked perfectly with God, living the life we could never live and offering his record to us through his life, death, and resurrection. The true and the better Hezekiah was not simply a great warrior, but leads his people to victory over the greatest enemies of all, the enemy of God and the sin that is present and ruling in our own hearts, assuring eternal life through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the true and the better Hezekiah trusted his father to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that he could be highly exalted. 
and have the name that is above every name so that every person on earth and under the earth and above the earth would bow at his name and worship him because he is the greatest king. The true and the better Hezekiah has made a way for us to know and walk with the living God. And so I, I would ask these questions. Who else's approval could we ever want than that king? Who else could possibly deserve our worship more than that king? What else could we possibly live our lives for than that king? Jesus Christ, the name above all names, the one who will be worshiped forever. Whose approval are you seeking? What are you holding on to? What kind of legacy are you building? And God's grace for us, Chad prayed it this morning when we met as a staff. His mercy is new every morning and his grace to us this morning is that in the, in the beginning of a new year, you can ask these questions and you can turn, you can change because of the grace of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't even know what, what this whole thing is about. You don't know Jesus at all but you know that there are things in your life that are ruling over you, that are weights and pressures on your shoulders, things that you're giving your life to and they're just not giving anything back. You're asking the question, what am I here for? And I wanna tell you, Jesus Christ gave his life for you, that you would be reconciled to the Father. Maybe you've walked with Jesus for a long time, but it's been a while since you've asked some of these questions. So here's what we wanna do this morning. In a minute, I'm gonna pray. And the band is gonna come out and they're gonna begin to play. And what we wanna do is genuinely give you the opportunity to ask these questions of yourself. If you have a pen, if you have a, a piece of paper, to write down the answers to these questions and to say a prayer, to ask God to help you take the right next step towards resting in his approval, towards tearing down the Asherah, the idol in your heart this year, we're gonna give you an opportunity to evaluate what is my legacy right now? And what do I want it to be moving forward? So let me pray for us and in just a minute, we're gonna give you just like 60 seconds to really evaluate and look inwardly and think and pray. And then we're gonna enter in a, into a time of worship this morning. So will you pray with me? Father God, we recognize that there is no greater king than King Jesus who has given us his full and final approval because of his perfect life and his death and his resurrection. Father, we recognize that the flowers that you want to grow in our hearts, if we trust in Jesus, can never truly grow if the weeds are still there. Father, show us the weeds. Help us to pull them. Father, we know that each one of us is building a legacy, whether we're paying attention to it or not. May our legacy be that we would join in the choirs who sing glory to God in the highest. We want our lives to be known not by what we've done, not by what we've accomplished, not by who we see ourselves to be. We wanna be known because we trusted in you. May that be said, Father, about us. Father, help us to be honest and real Father, if we need to talk to somebody, God, help us to go and to have courage and to confess and to talk. Father, it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. So show us the way to go. We love you, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus. 
Amen.